Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, January 30th. Today, the tech giant at the center of U.S.-China tensions, the federal contractors who won't be paid back after the shutdown, and the D.C. straw cop. This week, there's a giant tech company in the news. Here in the U.S., it's not really a household name. But in reality... Huawei is the world's biggest maker of telecommunications equipment. It has overtaken Apple to become the world's second biggest smartphone maker. So it is really huge, and uh, it does exemplify where the Chinese government wants the economy as a whole to be going into world-class technological titans. Anna Fifield reports for The Post from Beijing, and she says that the company is known for sometimes pushing its employees to the extreme. They want their employees to be hungry like a wolf. And in this context, it means kill or be killed. There's a real sense inside the company that they are involved in a battle for survival. The grand jury in Seattle has returned an indictment that alleges 10 federal crimes by two affiliates of telecommunications corporation Huawei Technologies. That's acting U.S. Attorney General Matthew Whitaker. The criminal activity alleged in this indictment goes back at least 10 years and goes all the way to the top of the company. Whitaker and the Justice Department say that Huawei employees have lied and stolen from American corporations to advance Chinese interests. But the view from Beijing is somewhat different. The Chinese government has backed up Huawei. They have called this action against the company immoral and unfair. And they are viewing all of this, the trade war, the actions against Huawei, as part of this broader American effort to keep China down. One of the sets of charges accuses the company of basically lying to hide the fact that it was doing significant business with Iran for more than a decade. But national security reporter Devlin Barrett says that's not all that Huawei is being investigated for. The other set of charges accuses the company of repeatedly trying to steal the technology from a company called T-Mobile, which most folks have heard of, and specifically, as odd as this sounds, trying to steal the technology for a robot that T-Mobile had developed called Tappy. And it was a robot that tested cell phones. And apparently Huawei was so interested in this robot that it not only tried to steal technical details of the robot, but at one point they actually stole a piece of the robot, according to the indictment. What do you mean like a a, a robot that tested cell phones. And why would this Chinese tech company want to steal this thing from T-Mobile? Well, so the the tech company, you know, manufactures devices and T-Mobile uses Tappy the robot to basically get new phone products and test them out. It's like a test drive for the phone and they got a robot to do it, 
which I'm guessing is cheaper ultimately than having a bunch of people do that work. And by all accounts, Huawei was very interested in the technology behind Tappy, and they wanted to build one of their own. And rather than develop it, according to federal prosecutors, they decided to just steal the technology behind Tappy. And you mentioned the company's chief financial officer, Meng Wanzhou. Mm-hmm. How does she figure into all of this? So she's the daughter of the founder of the company. She's not just a senior executive. She is the daughter of, of the person who runs Huawei. So it's a very personal thing when you've arrested the daughter of the company's founder. She is in some ways the international public face of the company. She does speak to international bankers. She does represent the firm in a lot of ways. And so charging her, arresting her is a huge earth-shaking move in sense of how China will perceive this. Now the company will perceive this. You're taking a shot directly at essentially the family that runs the company. So you have these kind of two different tracks of indictments against this huge company. Why is this such a big deal? It's a big deal for a number of reasons. One, this case exists in sort of a long thread of cases that the Justice Department has pursued against Chinese companies that they claim are stealing technology, stealing intellectual property, and basically putting American and other firms at a competitive disadvantage because they're not, according to the U.S., doing actual R&D. They're just out to steal technology and get a competitive edge that way. So that's part of why this case is a big deal. The other part of why it's a big deal is because you're charging this major, major firm that has huge and long and meaningful ties to the Chinese government itself with engaging in a criminal conspiracy and charging the the chief financial officer. There are at least two people who we know who have been charged under seal besides the chief financial officer. And the attorney general said something very interesting in announcing the charges. The attorney general said, The criminal conduct dates back 10 years and goes all the way to the top of the company. Um, That would suggest that the founder of the company is in the criminal crosshairs of the U.S. Justice Department. That's an amazing thing. What's the significance of these charges being made against a huge Chinese tech company? Right. So the broader circumstances of all this is that Chinese tech firms are in a global competition, a very intense global competition with American technology firms over cell phones, over computers, over all of it. So when when you have something like this where you have a criminal case charging, you know, one of those main players in that fight, I mean, the comparison point would be what if China charged the CFO of Apple with a crime and detained them, you know, at some conference somewhere what they went to? That's the level of significance because you're really talking about a criminal element now of a global trade competition for dominance in in technology. How do these criminal indictments figure into that landscape right now? U.S. officials who announced these indictments this week took great pains to say this issue, this criminal case, both these criminal cases are very separate and distinct and have nothing to do with the trade fight. That's a fine argument to make. I doubt that China sees it that way. China has said in its reaction to these indictments, you know, this is part of the government trying to punish us for being competitive. The great expectation here is that this will worsen tensions between the two countries. And there is a Chinese trade delegation that is coming to the White House very soon to talk about these issues. And it's hard to imagine that the Huawei indictments don't come up in some fashion in those conversations because the company is so closely aligned with the Chinese government. Is there any chance that China might retaliate against these charges? 
I think what you've seen in the trade war piece of this is that China does retaliate pretty quickly every time there is sort of a trade salvo fired at them from the Trump administration. I think the big question in law enforcement mind and diplomatic minds on the U.S. side right now is what will China do in response to that? Because there is some expectation of retaliation. But what would that look like? Would that be an arrest? Would that be charges preventing maybe an American executive from traveling to a bunch of different parts of the world? It's really unclear. And that's the big question that sort of we're waiting to see what the answer is to because we, everyone in government does expect China to respond in some fashion. Devlin Barrett covers national security for The Post. Anna Fifield is our Beijing bureau chief. Now that the shutdown is over, the 800,000 federal employees who return to work this week are going to get back pay for their missed paychecks. But not everyone who does work for the government is getting compensated for the time that they weren't working. This other group of federal contractors was never going to get back pay and in many ways going to be worse off than federal civil servants. This is Aaron Davis. I'm a reporter on the investigative staff here at The Washington Post. And he found that during the shutdown, those contractors sometimes didn't just lose out on pay. Some also lost their benefits. For example, employees with a company called Unispec Enterprises had insurance claims denied because their employer couldn't pay their health insurance premiums. And that's not a unique case. Unispec is one of at least 10,000 businesses with government contracts that were affected by the shutdown. This is from the top echelons of an office down to data analysts to their office assistants, all the way down to the janitorial staff. Whether they're highly paid defense contractors or janitors and security guards, there's no answer on whether they'll ultimately get reimbursed. These folks, because they are not employed directly by the government, they do not get their check directly from the U.S. Treasury, they have no claim on back pay for 35 days of the shutdown. They are beginning this year with a essentially almost a double-digit pay cut. And do we know generally how many people this is the case for? So we've heard a lot about this number, maybe 800,000 federal workers who will get their back pay or 800,000 who are without work. But the federal contractors are not counted by the government. We believe that they probably number as many as the 800,000, but they may be many more. Some estimates are as high as 4 million. The Washington Post was able to identify about 10,000 companies that had active contracts with the federal government when it shut down. We're talking about a very large number of people who are in this boat. 6,000 of those are small business. And so that's, that's less than $7 million in revenue a year. That's in many cases less than 50 employees a year. So for this company, how were they affected by the shutdown? Right. So this this group, Unispec Enterprises, that I talked to several employees last week, they were impacted really on three different levels. They will not get back pay. Secondly, they will also not get any pay very quickly now that the government is reopening. Because they get paid in arrears, it'll be several more weeks. In fact, they are about halfway through their version of a shutdown right now. Unlike federal employees who will get back pay beginning on Thursday, these employees will have to go, put in their time, their company will bill the government, the government will then pay the company, and then the company will pay them. Their next paycheck, their full paycheck, won't come until February 28th. Wow. 
And then thirdly, this company, like many others that I've heard from, were really pushed almost to the brink of bankruptcy because of the shutdown. One of the employees I spoke with. We've never had such devastating news as a shutdown like this. Her name was Janice Morgan. I worked as a contractor for the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Office of Pipeline Safety. I am also a caregiver for my husband because he has MS. She found out about her health insurance being turned off when she was at Georgetown University Hospital discharging her husband, who had just gotten out of the ICU. Pharmacist called and just noted to me that my insurance card had expired. And was told, we can't fill your prescriptions. And to let me know I would have to pay out of pocket for the medicine. Including one that's a very expensive $7,000 a month drug. And I was devastated. I, I didn't even understand what was going on. And she says, what are you talking about? They said, well, you should call care first. So she calls her health insurance provider. They say, you need to call your company. And then he tells her, yes, I'm, I've been on the phone with the health insurer today. I'm working on this. You know, it's only a matter of hours then before he, he gets the final word that they are not going to be able to keep their health insurance. They won't uh, give many, you know, leeway to pay this later. And so their health insurance was turned off. And that was basically because this company didn't have enough money to just float their health insurance for all their staff through the shutdown. Right. So this particular company now, the owner is taking out a loan to pay the just the health care premiums for January and February to get that up and running so he can then wait for the federal government to reimburse for the money from the end of last year. And, you know, again, we're still weeks away from getting the money to pay the employees. These contractors really operate on a razor-thin margin. Unispec Enterprises, their profit margin is about 2 or 3% on the year. So, you know, you've taken basically 8% of the revenue out of the game already for this whole year. And what did they say about, like, what this process has been like for them? It's been pretty profound to talk to these employees. The CEO of this company said to me, in 15 years of owning this business, I've never missed a payroll. I've never had, you know, a lapse in insurance for myself or my family or my employees. Everyone's asking, what do we do about that last month pay? Are we going to get that back? And that's, that's a stress. That's a real question that I have no answer for. He's questioning his ability as, as a small business owner. Everyone kind of questions if this is the place that they should be working anymore. And here, the CEO put his own family mortgage in forbearance last month, realizing he couldn't even pay his own bills. Is there any potential for help for these people from the government in terms of, of giving them pay for, for that interim period where they w weren't able to work? Or These federal contractors have no legal claim to the money. There's no, been no serious bills introduced in Congress on this front. And you know, President Trump, when he announced the reopening of the federal government last week... I'm very proud to announce today that we have reached a deal. Never once mentioned federal contractors in a speech. And Sunday, when his chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, was on television... What about all of those contractors who don't necessarily have job guarantees? Are they going to be made full? Uh, the contractors will depend on the contract. And um, let's talk about the employees for a second, because I know a little bit more about that. He kind of sidestepped the issue as well. I never really came back to the issue of the, these federal contractors. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Aaron Davis is an investigative reporter at The Post.
And now, one more thing from Post reporter Fennett Narapil about the citywide ban of plastic straws that was just put in place in Washington, D.C. In the nation's capital, the worst plastic waste offenders are investigated by an elite squad at the D.C. government. These are their stories. So D.C. enacted a plastic straw ban on January 1st, and I got curious thinking, who actually enforces this ban? So I just called up the D.C. Department of Environment and Energy and said, can I go on a ride-along with one of your inspectors? We'll usually go in, you know, undercover. It's sort of like secret shopping in some cases. His name is Zach Rybarczyk. I am part of our enforcement team, so we help enforce a number of different environmental laws in the district. So I got to follow him around as he went business to business at Union Station. We go into the restaurants and we'll interact with a manager or someone at the cash register. Closely inspecting their straws to see if they were the forbidden plastic or a permissible, compostable and recyclable material instead. It's basically kind of like a nerd comp. So you have Zach, who's sitting there with his green Department of Energy shirt. He's wearing a little backpack. He's carrying a clipboard, and he's just walking around to businesses. And he's really friendly. It's like straw cop officer friendly. But one of the funniest things that I saw while I was doing this ride-along is that he would uh, closely inspect these straws. Plastic straws, generally, when you bend them, they snap right back. And the compliant compostable straws, generally, when you bend them, stay bent. And then we've also found if we take the sample straw back to the office, we can test it. Generally, the compostable straws sink in a cup of water and the plastic straws float. So the bend and snap and then the cup of water. Yep. <laughs> it's pretty. It's a pretty odd test, but it's generally been uh, pretty accurate. D.C. is a city where everyone always asks you what you do for a living at parties. And I asked Zach, how do you tell your, explain your job to people? And Zach said he describes his job as an inspector this way. Uh, you know how you never see styrofoam boxes at restaurants anymore? You know how you have to pay that five-cent bag fee when you go to the grocery store? I help implement those laws. And I asked him, well, are you going to start saying, you know how you don't see plastic straws anymore? And he said, hopefully, we'll see. Fennett Nirapil covers D.C. government and politics for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. You can learn more about all the stories on today's show, plus dig into past episodes over at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. And join in on the conversation online using the hashtag Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.